Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 18 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. Today I'll be speaking with the Hawaii FASD Action Group. The Hawaii FASD Action Group was founded in 2014 by Anne Yabusaki, a psychologist and family therapist. During her 15-plus years as a family therapist for Hawaii's juvenile drug court, she encountered increasing numbers of youths and families affected by FASD who did not respond to evidence-based practices. In 2004, Anne attended a SAMHSA seminar, learned about FASD, and finally understood her clients. She consulted with other providers who shared similar observations and families with children affected by FASD, discovered the gaps in knowledge and FASD-informed services in Hawaii, and founded the all-volunteer Hawaii FASD Action Group. The Action Group focuses on FASD education and awareness through presentations to agencies funded by Hawaii's Department of Health, Education, Judiciary, Human Services, and Public Safety. In 2020, the Hawaii FASD Action Group became a 501c3 nonprofit organization. FASD Hawaii's mission is to raise awareness through education, advocacy, and research on the impact of FASD on individuals, their families, and the communities of Hawaii. Also with us today is Tara and Jeremy Daniel of the Hoapili Group. Jeremy and Tara Daniel live on the North Shore of Oahu and have been married for 22 years. They have four children and a service dog, Pineapple, who joined the family in 2017. They entered the world of FASD after their second daughter was diagnosed in 2005. Since then, they have been actively involved on the state level, both in Utah and Hawaii. Hoapili means favorite friend in Hawaiian and is an organization that hosts monthly parties specifically for individuals with special needs. It is a place where everyone belongs. Hoapili parties creates a safe, all-inclusive place for families to come together. Since then, they have been actively involved in the state level in helping to raise awareness on FASD, while searching for ways to help their daughter succeed in a world where little to no services existed. While learning how to successfully advocate for their daughter, they have also been asked to advocate for others in struggling to receive services for their own children. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about the things that matter. Martin Luther King Jr. Welcome to today's episode. I'm so excited for our guests um, to be talking with me. I have members of the FASD Hawaii Action Group. I have 
Anne Yabusaki, who founded the group. And I also have Jeremy and Tara Daniel, who are not only a part of the group, but they also uh, run the Ho'apili group. So as I've been practicing this for weeks, aloha, everybody. Aloha, Aloha, Natalie. And welcome to FASD Hope. I'm so happy that you're all here. I think the mission and the work that you're doing out in Hawaii is just fabulous and so important. I've been excited to watch everything that you're all doing. So let's get started because I know everybody's journey is different and how this wonderful group and how your services came to fruition are all in unique ways. So Anne, I'm going to start with you and um, just how did you begin FASD Hawaii Action Group? All right. Thank you very much. It, it, it really, when I look back, you know, you sent me the question and I looked back and thought about it and, and came up with more of a story format. This is really more about dreams that have come, come you know, popped up like flowers in this journey of, of forming the Hawaii FASD Action Group. Um, the story begins in about maybe 20, 15 years ago. I, was, I am a psychologist and I was working as a family therapist in juvenile drug court. Now, as we know, many of the children there might, might have, a high percentage might have fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, but I didn't know it at the time. And I had been very successful um, up until that point <laughs> with families and it actually did some pretty uh, good work to prove to the court that family therapy was a powerful tool to help the court. So in that process though, as the years went by, um, I found that some kids didn't respond. Some families just did not respond to what traditionally would have been, you know, um, really helpful. So I looked at, when I do family therapy, I look at generational patterns. I look at um, value system. I look at belief systems. I look at medical illnesses throughout generations. And I look at alcohol and substance abuse as as an issue and what's passed down from generation to generation. And I knew about the genetic disposition, predisposition for alcohol, um, for addiction in general. And um, because I'm I'm also a uh, trained in addiction treatment, but I I never came across families that were so unresponsive and had so much difficulty, nor did I come across children that were, um, no matter what we did, were, could not quite get the concept. And, and their hearts were bigger than I ever imagined, and yet they could not get a concept. I had one particular child that um, I want to talk a little bit about because this child is what inspired me to move on. Um, a beautiful kid, maybe about maybe 12. I'm going to try to disguise him a little bit. It's male. And what, what um, maybe about 12 to 14. And what he, he did was to say to me, you know, Dr. N, the world's not fair. The judge wants me to do something. I want to do it and I can't do it or I don't do it. And um, so through those stories, he, he, we, the judge sent him to uh, residential treatment. And even in, in residential treatment, 
they changed his medications because they said that he could not be under these medications for uh, their policy. But that was his sleep medication. And I knew that, that he needed it. But they changed it because it was against the policy. It wasn't indicated for adolescents, so to speak. It was researched only for adults, but it worked. After they did that, he couldn't sleep. And he would wander at night on the treatment grounds. And they couldn't understand. And he was, quote, restricted for, you know, all kinds of restrictions were put on him. Um, he broke into the counselor's room one evening, late at night, and he took a, um, a bong, you know, one of those uh, addiction bongs. And he, you know, came up to me and showed it to me when we had our session. And he would say, I'm going to bust him. I'm going to bust the counselor. And I said, no, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You broke into somebody's office. You know, um, you're the one on probation, you know, uh, and maybe it doesn't belong to the counselor. Maybe it belonged to a client. So how do we know what to do with it? So we had, I spoke more slowly because I was beginning to understand him. I spoke simply and concretely about ideas and he seemed to begin to take it in, but I didn't know if he really understood. So those, we decided, I, I said, well, you know, you decide whatever you want. I'm not going to tell the judge about this. You know, you decide because I know you'll do whatever you, you think you need to do. And so the next week when I went back, I asked him, well, what did you decide? And he says, about what? And it was as if he forgot about the whole incident. And I said, about the, about the bong. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, about the bong. And, I, and he said, well, I threw it over the fence in the neighbors. Oh, okay, okay. And, he, and, and that was the last of it. And um, we, we didn't have to discuss it. But, but what was constantly impression to me, impressionable to me was the fact that the way that he thought and the way that he reasoned and the way that was his memory function. And, the, and I was also trained as a neuropsychologist. So all my training from 30, 35 years ago came back to me. And I was saying, I am dealing with someone who is neurologically impaired. I must be because I, I, I did brain trauma work with people with accidents who have been in car accidents. So I went back and I went to my first training in 2004 on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I had never, you know, I, I said, the history of addiction in the family is strong. There's gotta be a link. So when I went back, that's when it kind of dawned on me what was happening and how it impacted the brain. And I learned so much from those sessions that I, I went back to the courts and I said, we've got to change our whole procedures. And who am I to speak to the judge like that? You know, and, and say, who am I to tell the probation officers what to do? But I said, I, I, for the sake of my, my children, I've got to do this. So um, they slowly began to learn about fetal alcohol spectrum and we learned together and we tried to change the court. We tried to be, when, when my client would say, you know, Dr. Ann, I feel like my brain is Swiss, like Swiss cheese. That was textbook. And I, and I said, you got to judge, you got to slow down. You got to make your, your directives more concrete, 
put them in pictures and start to change the court. But what I also needed knew was that these children or families would be graduating from the court. So we needed more systemic help around them. And when I went into the field to look for what was available, um, intensive in home, uh, family therapy that went to the home, um, none of FASD informed. And I realized that the interventions wouldn't work if not be punitive to the child and to the family. That's when I got mad. <laughs> when I get angry that I can't help somebody, I, I go into dream mode. And that dream was that I'm going to help create services for these families and these kids. They don't deserve nothing, you know, that we've got to do something. And so that was the second dream is that I, I called colleagues and say, what do you know about this? What have you been doing? Where do you get the help? How do you refer clients? How do you get the evaluation? How do you get the assessments? How do you, you know, who does them? So all these questions and these people said, we have the same questions, let's get together. So we got together in about 2014, 2015. By 2014, I was giving a lot of talks on FASD, trying to, uh, going into the schools, going in, uh, into the graduate schools and so on, and trying to get them to, to change their curriculum, to put this into their curriculum. But um, what happened was then, that's when in 2015, uh, FASD, Hawaii FASD Action Group was, was born, so to speak. Um, they wanted to make a difference too. And so that dream came about and it, we all were on the focus of prevention, but more than that, because the state had looked at prevention in 2006, but disbanded that effort in 2008 when the recession occurred. And that's what I learned. And so therefore nothing had been done since then. So I said, well, let's, you know, the more immediate issue for me was to create services, support services for these families. And it's gotta be wraparound services, informed wraparound services. So what we did was um, pull together as many people as we, from different disciplines, from different systems together to try to uh, develop some momentum for this in the field and then include prevention. So our next dream was to educate everyone, to create the awareness, to create the consciousness of this ignored invisible population. And so, but we, we realized that, you know, we were providers and we were doing this for the parents and the parents needed to be a part of this and that they need to be the driving force of this. They need to inform us what helps most. They need to be the, the drivers of this group. And so we gradually, um, in this, we, we found Tara and Jeremy, and I'm so grateful to them. We found Ginny, right, who's also a member, was in 2006, very active at that time. And uh, she joined us. And then now we have more, more families. And as I identify more families and try to get them some help, I refer them to our FASD action group, caregiver parent support group. And through them, they're getting the education and they're getting the support that they need. And they're finding their voice. More important to me is finding your voice to be able to speak up and change systems. 
um, I'm a civil rights worker by trade too. So um, I've, I've been very interested in creating change, especially for those who are underserved as well as unseen. So um, through this, um, parents becoming more active and directing the group and um, our whole purpose is that the children leave, live productive and purposeful lives, happy lives. And my dream now is that we create this group, but the vision forward going is that these children, when they become adults, become the change makers. There's a group called the Change Makers in Canada. And I listen to their webinars. And I they are adults with FASD and they have done research, they have done surveys, and they are trying to get the word out about who they are and the issues down the line for adulthood. So I look forward to that being the the not necessarily you know the wraparound for a whole group, but something that can happen. So what we are focusing on, we do a lot of education and awareness. We do a lot of grants. We're trying to develop more grants. We, are, we became a nonprofit. This informal volunteer group became a nonprofit in 2000 and uh, last year, 2019, May. And with our board of directors now helping to direct us, uh, we are seeking out grants. We're looking at legislation and, and yes, the RESPECT Act. Um, we're trying to rally the parents to help and create a community around these acts. We'll go to Brian Schatz. He is our senator from Hawaii, and we will ask him to put it on the calendar. And we will, we have a board of directors fully actively involved. So what more can I say except that it's been a journey? <laughs> but you know, the, the, and the dream continues for all of us. That is a wonderful, wonderful story. Oh my goodness. That just hearing the very beginnings and what you saw and having it turn into this, this wonderful group and support, you know, and, and just, you really, as a parent of a young adult with an FASD, I love to hear you say that adults and young adults with FASD, they can be the change makers. That inspires me because, and I know I'm sure Jeremy and, and Tara feel the same way that, you know, if we can not only help empower our children who will become adults, you know, young adults, but also advocate them and have them be that change, you know, mm -hmm. that cycle hopefully can stop, you know, or at yep. least slow down, you know, because we know, you know, as parents, as professionals, that alcohol and substance abuse is systemic and it is a public health crisis, you know, and especially FASD, because we know that out of all of the substances, it's the most harmful to an unborn child. So I am just so thankful for that story, Dr. Ann. That's amazing. Turning FASD Hawaii into this strong nonprofit and you have made all these alliances and everything. So that is wonderful. Thank you so much. So I'm going to ask Jeremy and Tara to share a little bit about their story and how they started from parents to advocates to now, you know, being involved in this wonderful state advocacy? Yeah, so we entered the world of FASD when our second daughter was diagnosed 
Um, we were in the room when she was born. We were there with her birth mom. No, you know, anything that showed up in the hospital, the APGAR scores were all completely normal, brought her home. She was happy and slept through the night at like two weeks old. Um, and then at about six months, we started noticing she wasn't hitting a lot of her milestones. And so at her six month appointment, I shared my concern with our pediatrician and just said, I'm not quite sure what it is, but my gut just says there's something that's just off. She's not hitting her milestones. And I remember he said, well, if she's not sitting up by nine months, then we'll look into, you know, anything further and immediately ruled out autism because she was so social and made eye contact. And that was really all they could rule out. And then it was kind of like, all right, well, let's, you know, let's wait three more months and see. So at her nine month appointment, she was sitting up. Um, but we worked on sitting up every day from that six month appointment to the nine month appointment for hours a day. And by we, what she really means is mom worked with her. <laughs> for, let's just be clear where the credit goes. But she, she was just very dedicated and helping Briar hit those milestones because we knew that they were so important. We knew that, you know, we wanted to do everything that we could so that developmentally she didn't fall behind. We didn't really know what we were encountering or dealing with at that point either. So at nine months, we were at the doctor's back to the, you know, nine month well check and she was sitting up and fine, but there were still, there was just something in my gut. I just knew as her mom that there was something that we were missing. And um, our pediatrician was wonderful and he just kind of ruled things out and just said, okay, we'll just keep watching her and see what it could be. And then at about 12 months, um, a coworker of Jeremy's knew that we were trying to figure out what was going on. And he mentioned fetal alcohol syndrome to him. He said, maybe she has fetal alcohol syndrome. And I remember Jared calling me from work and saying, I think I know what it is. I think Briar has fetal alcohol syndrome. And I had never heard of it in my life, had no idea what that was. So I Googled it, which is the worst thing any parent can ever do. And everything I found said that she would end up homeless in jail as a prostitute or addicted to drugs. And I also found when I was reading that the only way to diagnose it was to have history of the biological mom. And so I pulled out our health history and on there, her birth mom had written that she drank daily for the first um, four months of pregnancy. So with that health history, which we will be eternally grateful that she was honest in that health history, we were able to take it back to our pediatrician. And then at 16 months, she was diagnosed with PFAS by a geneticist. But after reading the options, basically, that she would end up homeless or in prison or as a prostitute or addicted to drugs, um, we just made the commitment as her parents that we would do everything possible from that day forward to make sure that she never became one of those statistics. And that has really been our life since then. We have just, um, instead of being afraid or living in fear, we just got educated and we learned how to advocate and we learned, you know, about all the things like 15 years ago, I couldn't have told you what an IEP was. I couldn't have told you what speech therapy or occupational therapy entailed. Um, I had no idea what brain-based parenting was. Um, so all of these things that we had to learn, we learned and we were able to accommodate and make life possible for her. And, and I just want to add something that's uh, maybe a little bit of a digression, but we'll come back on point. I just want to say that I'm so grateful for the Dr. Ann Yabusaki's of the world and her husband, Ken, they are phenomenal. 
They are phenomenal. These people are angels. You, you heard Anne's heart as she was sharing her journey, her story. Um, they don't have to be doing this. And that's the thing that's always the most touching to me and for you and Ken, you, I know you don't have to be doing this. You can be comfortably retired at this point, but you know, it's when good people get involved and they share their skills. That's where, that's where just miraculous change can happen. And, um, the other thing, and, and Tara, Tara and I just, just feel such gratitude for them. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention is that with our birth mother, Briar's birth mother, I think, I think that education all around, like Dr. And was mentioning is so important. It is a systemic issue. People need to be educated on so many levels um, at, at, in all branches of government and all healthcare occupations, because when this 20 something year old girl went to her, her OBGYN <laughs> with an unexpected pregnancy, not knowing what to do to move forward with her life. I mean, imagine being in that situation, just being just completely unaware of what, what you're going to be able to do um, moving forward or what you should be doing moving forward. I feel that that OB failed her at that time because the OB looked at her and he said, do you smoke? And she said, yes, I smoke. And he said, you need to stop smoking right now or you'll hurt, you'll harm your baby. And cold turkey, she stopped smoking completely. Never touched a cigarette the entire course, the duration of her pregnancy. And it was a big deal because as soon as she delivered the baby, she said, somebody wheel me out of here. I need a smoke, right? Not once did that doctor say, do you drink? And I feel like if he had, I feel like she would have had the same response, but he was uneducated. He did not ask the question and she did not know that her actions would have such a detrimental effect on the, on the unborn baby. So, so again, you know, Tara and I, we just feel such gratitude um, for Natalie, you know, for, for you creating this voice in the world. And again, for the Yabusakis and people who, who are involved and are courageous enough to share their stories and to kind of move beyond their comfort zones to educate others and, and to give their time. This is a big issue. Dr. Ann and us, uh, we, we've talked with Dr. Ann and Ken many times about how this is a civil rights issue. There's so many people being impacted by these FASD complications that we need to do something. So thanks to both of you. Um, I'll, I'll get back on topic here, but I just wanted to just kind of add my uh, color commentary there. And I'll add how we met Dr. Ann was um, we moved to Hawaii in 2011. And then it, I believe it was in 2014, our mutual friend, Jenny introduced, well, she invited me to go to a conference that Dr. Ann was, had put together on FASD. And I went to the conference and afterwards she introduced Dr. Ann and I, and we connected and have been working together ever since. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Ever since we we're we're kind of glued together now, guys. <laughs> and we are grateful for that. 
And I, I love that. And, and Jeremy, you're so on point with that. You know, if it weren't for Dr. Ann and those professionals who don't have to be in this world, but they are doing it because their heart is in, you can hear in Dr. Ann's story and other professionals that don't have any familial ties, don't have any children with FASD, but they know that this is such a crisis that as parents, you know, we are just so forever grateful and, and so forever thankful. Relating, you know, Jeremy and Tara, I think when, when we, so it took us a lot longer to get our son's diagnosis. And one of the first statistics that I read was the, the lifespan. And that really smacked me in the face, you know, Mm -hmm. and I know there's a lot of controversy behind that study and and behind that, but that was one of the first things that I, I read as a parent. And I was like, you know what? No, that's not, you know, no, because, and, and one of the, the many blessings of doing this podcast is I get to interview adults that have an FASD that are well beyond that lifespan that, that life expectancy. And like Dr. Ann, like you said, those change makers, they're all past that life expectancy. And that to me is a miracle right there that especially now, I mean, and, and if we think about, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, you know, it was only fetal alcohol syndrome and that was it. Nobody else knew about FASD being a spectrum or how, you know, it, how it, you know, crosses, you know, the limbic system and how it damages the brain. So when I look at adults that are living with an FASD and, and like you said, Dr. Ann, that are, that are making the change, they, to me, are the inspiration that keep me going. And I know for Jeremy and Tara, they keep you going. And, and for Dr. Ann, you know, they, they keep you going and, you know, they make us want to keep doing the work that you're doing. So, so thank you that, oh my goodness, this is such a wonderful episode. I'm so, so thankful to be talking with all of you. So we have the history of FASD Hawaii. We have your history, Jeremy and Tara, of, of how you became involved in the FASD community. So before we discuss your program, um, Jeremy and Tara, let's go back to Dr. Ann. And can we talk about some of the services and supports? You did touch on quite a few of them, but what are some of the um, services, supports, and, and activities that you provide through FASD Hawaii Action Group? Well, The primary service right now is education. What we're trying to do, uh, uh, we're we're trying to get some grants to be able to uh, formulate a, uh, to tweak some of the curriculum that are out there and make it unique to Hawaii and its population, make it culturally appropriate, uh, base it on different populations. For example, those uh, who work with the criminal justice system or those who work with the Um, in the Department of Education or Department of Health, what unique challenges there might be. Um, And the parents are going to be involved with that. But that is interesting because I have been able to get some agencies willing to try out the curriculum. So they're willing to, we're going to train the trainers. This is our idea at this point. We, We don't know if we'll get the funding, but we're going to train the trainers and they in turn will train their own staff. We will help facilitate, but they will learn to support and empower their staff so that we can develop a greater capacity and outreach. And uh, it was very interesting because it was easy to get these agencies on board. It was easy. And um, 
I, I would for a great, you know, forever grateful that we have these connections. So education, the next part is that we wanted to develop a center for assessment and screen uh, a method for assessment and resource center. Now that will be probably farther down the line, but we have been offered space to do that, if physical space if we wanted. And we've been consulting with other physicians, neurodevelopmental specialists, and they um, are kind of steering us, you know, back and forth, what's the best way to do this? But we want to increase the capacity. Most of them are saying that they, we have the capacity for assessment. We need to develop the capacity to treat and intervene and help and uh, prevent. So we're going to focus our efforts on that point at this time. The other area is in legislation. One of our uh, board members is going to take the legislative effort, as I said, and we are working um, with the RESPECT Act, as you had talked about earlier. We're going to get involved. We're getting the people and the committee um, assembled, and we have a champion to lead us. And um, But the, also locally, we have local people, legislators, who are interested in and understand FASD. So I've been privileged to be able to go and brought Tara with me. <laughs> we went and did a, a briefing for the legislature, I guess, yeah, two years ago, maybe. And, uh, but it's always an uphill battle, you know? And we can never uh, say it enough or often enough. We, we, we develop these big yellow t-shirts, bright yellow t-shirts that says invisible no more. And we wear them when we go to the legislature now. It, it's, it's getting them to help support and create laws even. For example, waivers for Medicaid to help our children to redefine you know, the IQ limits and waive the IQs but for functionality only, for example, in, in develop, uh, determining eligibility for service. We are asking them to fund research projects so that we can at least get the prevalence of FASD in our state. Uh, we don't have a surveillance uh, method, so we don't know. So I'm trying to develop, a, uh, bring in a screening um, projects so that at least we can screen to see those who might be at high risk and then at least present that to our funders and show them the prevalence of what you're dealing with in this state. So there are, you know, research efforts, education efforts, um, service efforts. Um, uh, and what's interesting is that we do have the ear of the court. We do have the Department of Health is always interested in what we're doing and the Department of Human Services, you know, where the child welfare is, uh, services are there. They have uh, come to us for help and Department of Education has come to us for help as well. I wish they, they could do more, but they have their own systems. So we don't try to intervene, intervene with these systems. What I do is I would prefer to go around their systems. We develop it ourselves. We do it ourselves. Um, I'm not going to rely on them. They're, they're, they have larger, more intricate um, confining systems. And I'm not going to be, I don't feel that it's worth the fight. We want them as allies. We want them to cooperate with us. We want them to support us. So we will develop and be the forefront for them and they can join us when they're ready. I mean, that's about it. <laughs> that's a lot. My goodness. I mean, 
Wow. I'm tired just listening <laughs> to all of the work and action you've done. What an amazing accomplishment. Oh, Dr. Ann, you, we are so appreciative of you being in this community and your husband and, and just the work that you've done. Wow. And, and I love that, that you're saying you have the ear of people who need to hear. That is so important. Another guest a few episodes ago said that she is hopeful that the voices of people with FASD are finally being heard after all these years, you know, and, and like you said, so eloquently, it really is an invisible disability. So many people, you know, are, are so rely on that, on the quote unquote face, but even then, even when you have a child that has the full FAS, even then it still can be an invisible disability. So, you know, and, and those children that have those facial features, we know it's, it's less than 10%, you know, it's such a small amount. So I I'm just so thankful that you are bringing this out there. So, wow. So I am, before we end, we're going to talk about how people can contribute, can help, can just help be a part of FASD Hawaii Action Group. But now I'd like to move to Jeremy and Tara, because I know that something that you are doing complimentary um, with FASD Hawaii is the Hoapili Group. Am I saying that right? You're saying that right. Is the Um, Hoapili Group. And I love that. Can you explain the Hoapili Group and um, the significance of it? Yeah, absolutely. And and one thing I'll add also to what Dr. Ann had just shared is something that I feel like the Hawaii FASD Action Group is so great at is um, helping parents get their voice. And Dr. Ann mentioned that earlier, but I think that, you know, she'll be asked to go and speak to pediatricians or neurologists or the DOE and um, I'll go with her. And all of a sudden, when you're talking about a specific child that they've called you in to get help on, and you do a training on FASD, or we find this when we, because in our daughter's IEP, we have that anyone who works with her has to be trained in FASD every year. Every time we do that training, or every time we talk to a doctor about our daughter, at the very end, they end up saying, oh my gosh, I can think of so many other students or so many other patients that this would exactly fit. And so I think one of the biggest things I've learned is that to create the movement and the awareness that we need, um, parents need to be willing to share their stories. And I remember the legislation that Dr. Ann went and, and I spoke at, and somebody said something right beforehand that got me very upset and I could not stop the tears. And she said, okay, you've got to share your testimony next. And I said, I can't do it right now. I'm too, I'm too upset. I'm really angry right now. And I remember her saying, no, that's what they need to see. And I think that is so true that unless they see how this is affecting our homes and our families, they don't think it's an issue and they don't think it's a big deal. They just see kids that are acting out and rebellious or bratty or whatever, because they don't understand FASD. Um, but can I add to that? Yeah. <clears throat> one, one other thing, just, just, just to the parents out there who are listening. Um, I know from experience, you know, as a parent, sometimes we think, well, who are we to speak to the legislature or who are we to tell a doctor that they, excuse me, but you, you're missing this. You know, you don't, you don't really know anything about this or whatever. You know, I think sometimes we get worried that we will be discounted or, or looked at as somebody who is uneducated or unqualified maybe to, to share an opinion, but in actually doing that, 
I found that that's not usually the case, that, that people usually are very willing to listen, um, especially if you have professionals that are also um, are partnering with you, right, to, to share, like, like the Yabusakis of the world, right, who, who are able to say, no, in my experience, this is, this is very true, or, or what have you. But, but people really do need to hear the voice of the parents. They really, really do, because it's one thing to maybe study something like this in a bit of a vacuum, um, you know, from a medical book, but it's, it's something completely different to actually live it and breathe it every day. Okay, so Ho'opili. So in November of 2018, our kids had just finished um, spring or fall break, and we have four children. So at that time, they would have been 16, 13, bad at math. Nine. <laughs> Nine and five. five. Okay, there we go. <laughs> so we had just gotten through fall break, and the whole fall break, I saw three of my kids running in and out of the house all day, nonstop, having late nights, going to the beach, going to the pool, having playdates, doing all these things. And our daughter with an FASD sat on the couch and did nothing unless it was like a family activity that we had planned. And obviously throughout her entire life, we had seen this, you know, behavior and this um, way of life for her where she didn't get all the invitations that our other kids would get. And, um, this time it just hit us really hard. And I was really emotional one day and I just said, enough is enough. We are going to plan a party and we are only inviting kids who have special needs. This is going to be their party. They just, for us, we were talking about our daughter and we said, she just needs a place to belong. So we decided to form this group or actually, I'm well, sorry. Yeah, we just decided to, yeah, throw, we a decided party. to throw a party. One party. <laughs> yes. So we came up with the name Ho'opili, which in Hawaiian means favorite friend. We wanted something that tied into best friends. And that was the closest word we could find. So Ho'opili means favorite friend. And the tagline was a place to belong. So we planned this party. And our idea was that we would send home an invitation to any child in our area who had an IEP. So I went to the school and we dropped off invitations. And a couple of days before the party, I got a call from the superintendent who said, oh, this school just called me and informed me that you had dropped off invitations. And I'm sorry, we can't have those handed out to these kids. And I said, well, why not? And he said, well, it's not inclusive. And our schools are all inclusive. And so if you want us to be able to, you know, advertise for this party you're throwing, everybody needs to be invited. He said, you can, you can put it up on the bulletin board yeah. and all the students <laughs> can read it as they go from class to class. And we're like, these are the students that are never going to read the bulletin board. And but, but yeah, it wasn't inclusive. That, that was just like, that was comical to me. And as parents, if you're raising a child with FASD or with any disability, you know full well, they are not included in the school districts. And so my answer was, well, no, they're not invited. Actually, this is just for kids with special needs. And if you can't support that, we'll find out a different way you know, to invite these kids. So we just relied on word of mouth throughout the community. And we thought at this first, you know, at this party we were throwing, if we had five kids show up, then we would have five kids show up. And we rented out at our local university, BYU Hawaii. They have a big game room that has like a bowling alley and basketball and video games and ping pong tables and pool tables, pool tables, and just where there would be, you know, couches to hang out on something for everyone, no matter the age. And then we provided like pizza and drinks and popcorn and all the good stuff. 
So we showed up to this party and we invited a couple of typical peers to be there so that they could hang out with the kids as well and kind of help them navigate the games that they needed help with it. And we had 21 kids show up to that first party. We had one young man who was sitting outside the door when we showed up an hour early to set up. And he said he was there for the party. And I said, oh, well, you can help us set up. It doesn't start for another hour, but come in and help us. And he told us that he had been waiting there for three hours because he didn't want to miss the party. At the end of this party, we had parents telling us, this is the first time my child has ever been invited to a party. And we knew at the end of that party that it was something we couldn't let go of. And so, well, they were, (laughs) they weren't going to let us let go of it either because they were saying, (laughs) auntie, auntie, when's the next party? (laughs) When's the next party? That's right. And so (laughs) that night we decided that we would throw a monthly party for all of these kids. And so we threw monthly parties. It was always the third Thursday of every month, same place, same time. You know, as a parent, how important the structure is, right? So they know when to rely on it and what to do. And we did it for well, up until March of last year when COVID hit, and then we weren't able to have the parties anymore. And we're waiting for that day when we can meet again. And I see these kids at school and, you know, they'll say, auntie, auntie, when's the next party? And I get texts, I'll get messages or messages on Facebook. When's the next party, auntie? Um, And we grew from, you know, we had sometimes over a hundred people at these parties and other months we would have in the sixties and it just kind of would come, you know, we know that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but the greatest part about these parties is these kids come in and there is no expectation. They aren't nervous or anxious or worried about how they're supposed to act. And if they're frustrated and they're having a meltdown on the floor, nobody cares. We just keep going on with our party and parents can come and talk to other parents and not have to have their eye on their kid the whole time. Cause they know they're in a safe place where they are loved and accepted. And it has just been a really amazing experience. What I think is really interesting too. I love Natalie that this is a faith promoting podcast. And in 2018, that was the roughest year of our entire lives. Our daughter, just the behaviors got really hard. The, it just got to a whole new level where we would wake up every day and I didn't know how we would possibly make it to the next day. And I don't believe it's by chance that these parties happened at the end of that year. I think that it was one of those tender mercies and one of those miracles that God said, okay, yeah, it's been really hard, but look, we're going to put this in play and you're going to meet all these other families that are right there with you and that understand it and that get it and that can be friends with your daughter. And I just, I think that God is in the details, right? And so when we do our part and we do what we can, and then we can rely on him to make up for the other part, then those things happen and miracles are created. And these parties have just become their magic. You know, they just come to come and see these kids interact and it's been really, really wonderful. The karaoke shows that happen, the celebrations, the <laughs> dance celebrations that happen after somebody rolls a strike. I mean, they are remarkable. Yeah, you, you have to experience one of these. They're amazing. I wish we had them here. Oh my goodness. I wish that that was I and first of all, oh my goodness, Jeremy, the the, the inclusion remark. That just that sounds like something that would be said by, you know, just a, I'm not knocking administrators out there, but that just sounds like something. Yeah. It's not inclusive. And yeah. Okay. That's where you wanted to do the, you know, face palm thing, but I really, yes, Tara, 
for us and, and for parents and, and for professionals, anyone on this journey, you know, there are so many miracles that we see and that we sometimes, um, especially parents. And, and I know for me, um, our ref year was 2017, you know, the year we finally got our son's diagnosis. I think in those darkest times that God shows us that and I'm, I've been using this analogy a lot that another, um, someone else on another show told me, you, you start out as a victim, but then when you learn, like Dr. Anson, when you become educated and when you learn and when you have that, that fire, that passion for advocacy, then you become a victor. And then by your faith, you become a vessel. And that's how I feel like I see what you're doing. I see what Dr. Ann and her husband's doing. You know, I pray that that's what we're doing with FASD Hope is we're a vessel. You know, I, I really feel like our faith has made us, okay, how can I help others? How can I serve others? You know, we all know that this is a lifelong disability and it's a lifelong journey. So, you know, you're going to have some great seasons and then you're going to have some not so great seasons. So we know that not only our faith but also the support that we get from each other really carries us through. And so I'm so thankful that you're, you're bringing that up because a lot of people out there who listen and, and we get emails from, from family members. In fact, I got one today and it was just so, so amazing. I said, you know what? I love that you end your episodes on hope because parents, we need to hear that. And that, oh my goodness, I thought I was going to cry, you know? Uh, and that was just something that I did because I want to end on hope. You know, I don't want to end on some bummer statistics or something. I want to end on, you know, okay, what's going to make me feel better to get me through these next, you know, perseverations or whatever. Um, but it, so I'm just, you all are giving me hope. And oh my goodness, when this pandemic is under control. And when we can travel, I am so visiting you all because it sounds like not only you, you just have so much going on down there for the FASD community. And I love that. I love that. Now let's talk about the rest of 2021. I mean, obviously a lot of things are virtual. A lot of things are online you know, the whole Apili parties, in-person parties are, are kind of on hold right now, but what's going on for the rest of 2021 that, that our listeners can, can look forward to for FASD Hawaii Action Group? Well, you know, the whole Apili group is also, um, we're, like we say, we're kind of partners in this uh, for parents and for families. So we want to support the whole Apili program, wh whichever way they, they decide to do it. Um, we also have a virtual uh, parent support group. And so that, that has been interesting and, and I think um, important for families to start to connect. Um, and maybe even it might, it might be a better way to connect because you can connect from, this, you know, from your home and you can leave whenever you have to leave. <laughs> we understand that. Um, and uh, so for, for now, we're, we're saying let's do it that way. Uh, but for 2021 and 2022, we really um, want to move forward. There are some grant, op as I said, grant opportunities. Um, we're not going to stop. Um, we've, I've done a lot of virtual trainings and Tara has been part of that too with, um, uh, Jana Moya, another, um, practitioner. And, um, we still get requests. In fact, we get a lot of requests. Uh, we've done 
I don't know, that somebody made a count that we've, we've um, through our uh, trainings, just our trainings, we've, we've reached about 1,500 people in a way. And these are agencies and school classrooms contacting us. Could you please give a lecture or two to our students or our staff? And so um, this, this virtual stuff is, is continuing. And in one group, uh, we presented to 120 people. So we got out even further without physical space, renting a hall or anything. And so um, just by Zoom, we were able to um, at least start to stir their imagination. That's, that's where I am. We have to make people remember. And you talked about miracles. And I, I look at it in that way, that if we can get them to dream, that dream is the miracle it will come out, it will be drawn, the future will be drawn towards, the, towards us. But we, if we can, I'm grateful to the group because we're all dreaming together. We are of one intention, we are of one vision. And, um, and I know that, that we're gonna achieve what we're gonna, with or without funds, with or without <laughs> the legislature, with or without all the departments, we will, we will we will make a difference and it's going to be a sustainable difference. That, that's where we're headed. And Jeremy Tara. and Tara, would you yeah. all like to add what anything to that? I think as soon as our state allows um, larger groups to get together, we will start having our parties again. We'll have to start them at smaller. So we'll have to kind of have an RSVP situation. But as soon as we're able to do that, we will be absolutely doing it. At the beginning of COVID, you know, obviously we didn't know we would be looking into a year later that we would still be in the same situation. But a couple months into COVID, we held a dance party and we, we sent out a text to all of our families that would come to the parties. And then those that wanted us to come by, we drove to their houses and we had balloons and we had candy and we had glow sticks and bubble wands, bubble wands. And we would throw them over to the kids to keep our social distance. And we would blast music and we would just dance in front of their house and um, had that interaction and went to, you know, the houses all around the community that wanted us to stop by. And that was one way that we were able to. So the party still happened. The party. Yay. Still happened. Yay. Yay. So we're getting, we're getting creative and we're, you know, we, we keep in touch. And I think the beauty of it is that, um, it's just the reminder that you're not alone, which I think as a parent, sometimes it does feel so lonely and so overwhelming. And just the reminder of, it doesn't matter. Like you're not alone. We don't care what your house looks like right now. We don't care what your child is struggling with right now. We don't care that maybe you haven't had a chance to shower all day because you're dealing with other fires in the house. Um, but we love you and we are all in this together. And I think that's part of you know, just life and having, having that opportunity to help each other that you mentioned earlier, Natalie, on being a vessel of just when you're having a hard time, I'm there to pick you up. And when I'm having a hard time, you're there to pick me up. And I think that's what, and I love to, I do want a, a shout out to those adults living with an FASD that are willing to share their journey and where they're at now, because when our daughter looks at them on Facebook or on a podcast or on whatever, and she knows that this person who's not that much older, but, you know, a few years older than her, her daughter's 15. Now, when she can see someone who has an FASD that is successfully sharing their story and is successful in life, that does so much more for her than anything Jeremy and I could ever tell her when she's able to see that. And Tara, thank you so much for saying that, that, that really just means so much that how important 
how important that is to, to us and to the FASD community and how we need to take that pain and that struggle and use it towards our advocacy. So we have a special guest dropping in, um, Cleo Brown, who is a part of FASD Hawaii Action. Welcome, Cleo, to FASD Hope. I'm glad you could join us. Thank you, Natalie. It's my pleasure. Thank you for interviewing us. Um, I'm a member of the board and I'm a cons- I started out as a consultant for Hawaii FASD Action Group and helped them get their 501c3. I'm a community advocate in Hawaii um, and this organization is close to my heart. So that's my role in it and it's just a pleasure. And that's perfect. And I am so thankful that you were able to join us and you came in for the best part. So now let's talk about how we can get listeners from all over the world, because I have listeners that are all around the globe. There are so many of us that want to help what's going on and the work that you all are doing in Hawaii. So how can people help donate, volunteer, I'm giving you all a platform, so please share away. And everything that you're saying also will be in our program notes today so that people can go online or people can visit you on um, social media. How can folks get in touch with you and help out? I think I'll let Cleo be the, our spokesperson on that one. She's, she's the uh, tech person and the, the one that helped organized us and she's being a little bit modest here and I really want to play up her skills. I mean, she has been the backbone for uh, creating, helping us become organized. I mean, I have nothing, no idea about nonprofits, but she comes with a business background. And so she um, helped set up the website and um, interacted us with social media and um, reach out to other people. So I, I, you know, Cleo, go ahead and they can go to our website. It's hawaiifasd.org. Uh, we're also on Facebook at hawaiifasd. And um, we do have an Instagram as well that is under hawaiifasd, but it's not as active as the Facebook page is. Uh, for donations, they can donate through our website. Um, and we would very much appreciate it. And we are... Uh, an appointed 501c3 in the United States by the federal government. So your donations are tax deductible. There's also on our website, you can email us. We have lots of resources that if you want to take a look at and the background and a timeline of who we are and how we got to where we are today. And I have to say that I've seen a lot of websites and I love your website. It is so aesthetically pleasing. It is. And, and so well organized. So everyone please visit FASD Hawaii action group website. And all of that information that Cleo mentioned will be put in today's program notes. And actually FASD Hawaii is listed on FASDhope.com in the state organization section. So if you, if you are in a pickle and you're on our website, you can just click right on there and we'll take you right to it. So thank you again, everybody for being here and talking about the important work that you all are doing with FASD Hawaii Action Group. And you all know that I love to end our shows on what I affectionately call a hope takeaway. Um, So words of hope to those in the FASD community, no matter 
how they're involved, no matter, you know, where they're at. Um, let's just go around the zoom. I'm going to invent a new phrase now, instead of around the zoom, around the zoom, I'm going to trademark that. I like that. (laughs) Let's go, let's go around the zoom and let's each just share some words of hope for, for our listeners out there. So, uh, Cleo, I'd like to start with you. Words of hope. Um, it's my hope that the United States will be as successful with uh, support and investment in our FASD community as some of the other regions like Canada and Australia and New Zealand. Uh, I'm so impressed about the work that's being done, but I want everybody to know that we're going to do our very best to raise the awareness um, and help provide support um, and treatments for FASD. And Dr. Ann, how about you? Well, you know, I sent you some quotes, but I wanted to, I, I came across a few more and I hope you don't mind, but I, I, um, I, I'm a fan of listening to one's intuition to help uh, bring about dreams. And so my, my, um, my quotes are from Dr. Einstein, Albert Einstein. One of his students once asked, Dr. Einstein, aren't these the same questions as last year's exam? And Dr. Einstein said, yes, but this year the answers are different. So his his quote is saying, imagination is more important than knowledge, for knowledge is limited to all we know and understand. While imagination embraces the entire world and all there ever will be to know and understand. So I, I, I want people to dream and to know that all possibilities can become real. Finally, Martin Luther King says, our lives begin to end the day we become silent on things that matter. And, um, and I take that to heart because he had a dream and so do we. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ann. And Jeremy and Tara, what are your words of hope for folks out there? We have always said that our daughter will teach us far more than we will ever teach her in this life. And I think when we can understand how much individuals with an FASD bring to the world and what they're able to teach us, um, it opens up so many doors. My favorite saying that I kind of live by is life doesn't have to be perfect to be wonderful. Because as we know, there are going to be really hard days and hard times. And as you mentioned earlier, Natalie, this is a lifelong disability. It's not a phase that we're living through, but when we can realize that it's okay when we're having those hard times, that they're still good and there's still wonderful things that are happening in our lives. Um, it just brings about that attitude of gratitude. I think that makes it possible to continue to move forward. If I had to add something, I would just say, please remember how powerful your voice is whether you are a practitioner, a community member, a parent, an individual who who has been impacted by an FASD. um, Remember that your contribution can be significant. There are no small contributions. There are no small acts. Um, We read in the Bible that we're not to let our, um, you know, uh, not to cover our light, right? Let our light shine. Don't hide it under a bushel. 
um, do what you can do. And the power of you eventually becomes the power of us. And us working together can accomplish a lot of things. Such wonderful words of hope and such beautiful inspiration from such a beautiful place. Thank you and mahalo to FASD Hawaii Action Group. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you. Thank you, Natalie. Mahalo nui loa from us. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Vecchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com. Or please leave us a five-star rating and follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us next week. And remember, to be informed, take care, and always have hope.